Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I interview Dr. Ron on education. Dr. Ron has 20 years in education, including experience in K-12, as well as higher ed leadership. He has a master's in curriculum instruction and an education doctorate in educational leadership and management. On this episode, we discuss the entire educational system. Good teachers are a fundamental component of any civilized society. We must pay teachers a living wage. Solidarity forever. education dr ron welcome to the podcast hey hey how are you so this guy's got experience um k through 12 he's got graduate level experience uh he's got uh educational experience teaching experience and he's got leadership experience in higher ed so can you walk us through maybe some of your background in in higher education as we kind of break down the educational system in the united states yeah, absolutely, man. I appreciate the uh, opportunity and, and welcome the opportunity to discuss some of these some of these issues and, and some of these topics. So, yeah, for me, it's been uh, my higher ed career, as you mentioned, transitioning from K twelve. I spent a, a dozen years in the K twelve system, and higher ed was always something that I had inspired to, something that I always wanted to to get to. And uh, back in twenty fifteen, so we're, we're looking at eight years now, I made the transition and. I, I transitioned, ironically, from a K-12 environment directly into a medical school. So going, like, kind of skipping the undergrad, skipping the grad, and going straight to a medical school. Uh, but my, my foray into higher ed was from the perspective of a, a curriculum uh, mapping perspective of taking those skills from K-12 in curriculum and instruction and then uh, kind of overlaying them into a, a medical school and helping them to attain accreditation and go through all those uh, fun hoops and, and things that you have to do in order to get accreditation and, and get funding and so on and so forth. And from there, it just went to uh, another medical school, ironically, uh, where we built it from scratch. So that was an interesting opportunity to start at a school that had zero students and four faculty members and literally build it from nothing. And uh, I was there through four different cohorts of students in our first graduating class. So it was a great opportunity to to see that whole education process go through. And then now uh, I'm in a, a institution, a more traditional institution where I work with faculty, both at the undergrad and graduate levels in terms of uh, their teaching pedagogy, educational research, community outreach, those types of things. And, and all along the ways, I've also served as adjuncts teaching education courses uh, for future teachers and, and whatnot. 
So it's uh, it's kind of been all over the place and it's been a little bit of a whirlwind, but uh, you know, I've enjoyed the ride for sure. I've seen a lot of things. That's, that's, I think, uh, would you say that's where you found your home in higher ed? Is that where you want to finish out your career? Yeah. And you know, education is a funny thing, right? And life in general is a funny thing. It's, it's that whole adage of, you know, you have a goal, you have a dream, you have things that you want to do. Will it happen? Will it not? And it's that unknown, right? So like you're in K-12, you want to, you think you want to aspire to to higher ed, you want to go to higher ed, you know, you get the opportunity, you know, is it the right decision? Is it the wrong decision? And, and I was always of the adage, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather make the decision and not necessarily be happy with it at the end of the day, than sit there and wonder what would have happened if I would have, uh, and not knowing. Right. So there's definitely some pluses to the K-12 environment when you look at it uh, from a, an employee's standpoint in terms of retirement, in terms of workload, et cetera, et cetera. There's also some advantages in, in, in higher ed. Um, at this point, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm, I've been in it for, this will be my 20th year in general, in total. Um, you know, at this point, uh, you know, I'm in a place that I like, I'm in a position where there, I enjoy a part in the country that I like. Um, I don't see myself going back to K-12 though. There are absolutely benefits to that. So in education and higher education, is there kind of, at least the way I see it, I'm an outsider. I've, I've went through K through 12. I went to college, I went to graduate school. So, I mean, I have some experience of course, but, uh, I've never worked in the average towers like you have. But the way I see it as an outsider, you kind of have um, two different tracks in higher education. You can maybe go more the route of like a like a researcher, professor, teacher type, or you could go more into kind of leadership. Um, and you would say you, you probably took the took the track into leadership. Is, is that is that right? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair. I, you know, the the thing with higher ed. And it, it, I, you know, I didn't real. I, I guess I had an idea of it, but I didn't realize it. Um, you know, you, you think of. I always viewed educators teach. I always viewed content as the driver, as the most important thing, right? If you know your content, if you're an expert, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you can be an excellent teacher, so on and so forth. But then, you know, when you get into it, and when you're actually trained and educated, and so on and so forth. You know, you see that, that you know you you can know everything there is to know about Keynesian economics, but if you can't communicate that effectively, or you can't uh, engage the students the proper way in order for them to apply that information, you're absolutely ineffective as a as an educator, right? And you know, you always viewed kind of higher ed as the I, I get not you know, no pun intended, but higher than K-12, but it's totally not the case. Um, it is very research-based. If you want to teach, and I use teach in air quotes, you know, there are some excellent higher ed professors. There are some that really take ed research and take education and take their teaching uh, very seriously and do a lot of things to try to improve. One of the things that I run is a teaching and learning fellowship where I work with faculty, they apply, and it's basically like a, a, an ed 101 to improve their teaching. Um, 
but the credential to be a college professor is research and grant money and bringing in funds uh, and, and publications. Uh, can you teach? Okay, sure, fine, go ahead. Um, but that's unfortunate, in my opinion. It's not the priority, right? Can you bring in money the, to the university? Right, it's not the priority. And, and though for me personally, and everybody has their own personal opinions, you know, I, I see the, the place for research um, I don't have a problem with research. It's just not, it's not my thing. Uh, you know, I've published some things, I've done some things, but I don't want to spend my days doing research. Um, so yeah, you know, the other opportunities then become your leadership opportunities, things like me where I can work with faculty, which in essence translates in theory to the students based on, you know, a lot of the faculty development and various things that I'm able to do with them. So, um, you teach the next wave of teachers, just, is that right? Or are you more working with, uh, developing professors? Both, uh, both in my, so my day to day, I guess my quote unquote nine to five, it's developing faculty members, uh, current higher ed professors, um, I also teach as an adjunct at other institutions in, in departments of education where we're teaching the next wave of K-12 teachers and or, you know, eventually so higher ed. Or, you're teaching undergraduates, you're teaching graduate classes, and you're also working with professors? Is that is that Correct. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Act, that is accurate. So why don't we talk a little bit about the, the differences here? Um you said a little bit about Keynesian economics. We're going to go there. We're going to go. This guy's got a background in economics, so we're going to go there too. Keynesian economics. Uh, now we're into the golden era of capitalism, post World War II to about the 1980s, uh, when the Reagan and Thatcher neoliberal um, reforms, as we call them, uh, took place. That trickle down economic stuff. That'll be fun. That's going to be coming. But we're going to focus here a little bit on higher education. Um, the differences maybe in the student population, maybe the differences in the way things are taught, you know, K through 12 versus maybe, you know, your undergraduate, um, maybe education 101 class or whatever. And then obviously maybe not as much as developing faculty members, because I'm sure by the time you get a position in, in, in a higher ed institution, you already have your research interests and that sort of thing. So maybe we can focus on maybe K through 12 versus uh, undergraduates, and then maybe you know your graduate work. Maybe maybe um, what's what's the differences of teaching someone that might have a research interest or might have an interest in, in becoming a professor or getting a leadership position in uh, you know eventually in higher education. So why don't we start with K two through twelve? That's where you started. Would you recommend um, that people that want to get into education try their try their um, Try out K through twelve and, and teaching that realm. Is that even a, is that a prerequisite to get into leadership and education? You got to you got to work in K through twelve or anything like that. No, I, to be honest, I'd probably say it's 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 not the norm. Um, it, it's hard, man. You know, I've had a lot of jobs, a lot of different industries. I've done private sector, obviously public sector, uh, private schools, public schools, et cetera, et cetera. You know, education to me, and especially K-12, it's 
and this is going to open up some other cans of worms, I have a feeling. Uh, <laughs> but um, to do it, to do it and do it well and do it effectively, it has to be your ethos. It has to be your passion. It has to be in your heart and what you want to do. It, it, it can't be about other things. Um, you know, uh, I want to coach, but okay, I got to take this teaching job, but really what I want to do is coach. Okay. Can you do it? Yes, absolutely. Um, can you do it at a average level because of tenure and make it all the way to retirement and not have to work? Yes, you absolutely can. Um, are you doing a service to the to the students and to the to the community? Not necessarily. We've all had teachers who are excellent, and we've all had teachers who are absolute inspirations. I can think of some now as I'm literally saying this. I can also cite you names of some who just going through the motions, you know, hated to come to work, uh, but. There was a pretty nice pension at the end of the day, and they were counting down the days to get to their 30, 35 years, whatever it was, until they could retire, and then they would go off and, and, and do their thing. And um, for me, what really, at the time, and, I, you know, the problem I had with K-12 that was tough to swallow as somebody who had gone on and got a master's who went on and got their doctorate and wanted to grow and wanted to expand. The problem is that the system itself is set up. It's not necessarily set up where, you know, in the private sector, in theory, you run a business, the better you do, the more you produce, you're, the more you're going to make, the higher you're going to go, the further you're going to get. In education, in public education, you don't have those standards of measure, right? Your, your students go on, they graduate, but you get good evaluations, but there's not a clear path to upward mobility. What's the next? Okay, you go to the next step on the teacher scale, but, you know, if you want to, there's only so many positions or only so many things you could do. And I didn't like to be confined to the pension system or the, 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 the unionized system. It was like you were trapped and you couldn't get on. So I saw higher ed as a higher ed was a, wasn't so much that way, right? You could move, you could maneuver more uh, in, in different areas and in different realms that pique different interests um, without having to go back to zero or step one or, or what have you. And obviously Better funded too, a little bit bigger house, a little bit bigger paycheck too. Uh, is that fair? It depends. Um, this guy's got a helicopter pad on his house, right? Is that what, is that what you're telling me? No, because that's the interesting thing. Because when I when I left K twelve and I went to higher ed as an administrator, I literally was making the exact same dollar figure that I was in K twelve. Um, uh, now, since then, am I above or am I higher than I was? Yeah, I'm in a better position. And I would like to think most people, you know, you're not going to make moves and, and, and go backwards. Um, but I think it's 
depending on where you live, I guess, you know, I know, you know, if, if you're in the, some of the southern states, teacher pay is terrible. Um, so if you're in, the here North- in Texas, the, the economy is booming. There's always people moving here. Uh, SpaceX, all that kind of stuff. Corporations moving here because of the low corporate tax rate. I, I yeah. read somewhere that I think that they're 47th um, out of 50 states in teacher pay. That's absurd. So this is where I want to go here. What about funding yeah. of public education? And what about teacher salaries? Um, are we try- are we trying our best to recruit the best possible teachers to come and develop our nation's youth? I mean, teaching is a absolutely maybe the most important profession uh, in any country, in any society, in any civilized society. Um, so what of the importance, what of the emphasis in teaching and education in American society today? So the answer, the short answer is no. Um, you know, in the Northeast, you know, a lot of K-12 teachers' salaries, they'll top out in six at the, in the six-figure range. Now, six figures today in 2023 is nowhere near what six figures was, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And we're going to get um, inflation. We're going to get an inflation in right. the economy soon, for sure. But, but you, you asked the question, you know, are we, are we targeting, are we recruiting our best? And, and the short answer is no. And, and what I'll give, I'll actually give you some, some factual statistics to, to back this up. Um, the percentage of K-12, if we're, we're talking K-12, the percentage of K-12 teachers nationwide is still 80, roughly 85, 86% white middle-class people, okay? White students now make up less than 50% of the student population across the country. Now, I'm, I'm not, not trying to make this into you know, a, a race thing per se, yeah, but correlations, these are statistics and correlations. Right. Are these you, aren't theories. You can't, tell right. me, you can't tell me that when we talk about recruiting the best, you can't tell me that you're telling me that, you know, the quote unquote white middle-class demographic, that's, we're not targeting African-American teachers. We're not targeting Hispanic teachers. We're not targeting all these other cultures that bring these elements into and provide those different perspectives. So when we talk about that, now the the education that's being taught is being taught from the lens of a middle-class white background, which is completely different and potentially unrelatable to the students that they are now entrusted to teach and develop and mold and take on and send to our institutions of higher learning, provide those opportunities put into the workforce, but they're just getting this this predominantly one lens of experiences uh, that, that they're being taught. So no, until until you know until we can diversify, until we can target all the different parts of the country and the different demographics that that help represent who our students are and who's learning, uh, or completely overhaul you know, our teacher preparation, which it's getting more, it's getting better in terms of, you know, uh, looking at more, you know, critical race theory and, and, um, Uh-oh, that's a hot button it, issue. Uh-oh. Yeah. You know, issue. but, you know, more multicultural, uh, elements into teacher preparation courses in higher ed and inclusivity and so on and so forth. I mean, we're, it's getting there, but it's not, it's not there. No, I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding about the, the critical race theory, so I've done a little bit of research on it. Apparently, it was just an idea um, thrown out by a right-wing think tank 
to kind of propagandize, um, you know, the whitewashing of Ameri- maybe American history or the whitewashing of um, the doctrinal system and, and the way things are taught. It's basically just a way to, um, you know, try to, I guess, uh, you know, it's like it's like a term a term to kind of turn off people and, and being critical. Like, I think it, I think it's I think looking critically at the educational system is a good thing. You know, like I think asking questions like why aren't uh, minorities being um, drawn into teaching? Why is, um, you know, minorities in inner cities and, and people of lower income getting college degrees? Um, why is why is the cost of now, now I want to get into more like the theory stuff, but like the cost of education, it keeps rising. Um, the salaries, if you want to go back to that trickle down stuff, salaries haven't kept up with inflation, um, since the 19, late 1970s, I think rural wages are about the same as they were in the late seventies or early eighties. Uh, and, and this is, I guess, uh, at at first it was just affecting, um, what they call low, low skilled workers, which is just a term, um, you know, the capitalist class, I'm a little political here, but the capitalist class uses to underpay um, service um, jobs, like professions that maybe don't require training or an, uh, a certification or an advanced right. degree, but it's still right. insanely um, necessary. Like, for example, during COVID, we found out the people that were running the country, you know, the people that were making our food and stocking our grocery stores and all that kind of stuff. Those are the people that they call low-skilled wages or low-skilled workers. And here's a here's a fun fact. Low-skilled workers make up something like 75% of the population. So, you know, that's yeah. just a term that we, uh, I guess the elites, you know, have come up, uh, come up with to justify why some people, you know, live in poverty. But, um, again, going back to, you know, some of the statistics you brought up, the cost of education continues to rise. Uh, for example, I'm sitting here in hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt, you know, and uh, the Biden administration was supposed to cancel $10,000 or maybe it was $20,000 and now it's nothing. And maybe they just revamped the um, the student loan forgiveness plan a little bit that you pay a little bit less, but that money isn't going anywhere. You know, and they had a, a lot of different political options, um, you know, to take. And yet they all seem to fail. Uh, and, and some of them, you know, maybe were thought to fail from the get go because uh, it was pretty obvious how the Supreme Court was going to rule on some of these programs because of the, you know, the staffing of the Supreme Court right now, which will be a Republican right wing reactionary institution for at least the next generation. But um, I want to get to that, though. Like, what about the cost of education in the American dream is getting a college degree uh, even realistic for an inner city youth or minority uh, at this at this stage in the game and um you know why why is the why is the costs continue continue to rise and yet the salaries um don't you know i've I've seen like you know you you find see stuff on the internet but like you know fifteen dollars an hour and wants a master's degree you know it's 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 ridiculous um some of the some of the educational and certifications and costs i mean i took um i'm in healthcare i don't go too specifically into my background but um, just the cost of school alone, and now we're talking about 
books and lodging and food. And then I had to do certifications and professional exams and licenses. I mean, I've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to kind of finally get to a place in society where I have a nice degree. I have a nice job. But um, I had a lot of support from my family and stuff and people that come from a background without um, the means, without the privilege, without the support. They're never going to get to this place with a doctorate degree in education or a doctorate degree in, you know, a healthcare field. Uh, it's it's challenging, you know, and I think that might be some of the reasons why. Because it, it it takes at least a base, um, it takes at least a basic bachelor's degree to go into teaching, right? A minimum, right? Yeah, and then that's I mean, part of the problem. You know, we talk about you talk about a cycle of poverty. That's I mean, economic it, stuff for sure. Cycle of poverty, sure. It, it, it's it's all of these. To- the crazy thing about all of these topics, and the one thing that I've grown and learned over the years, is just the the absolute complexity to all of these things. And and there's no single bullet. And oh yeah, that's it. But then that causes some other reaction on the other side of things, right? So like when you talk about it, it is. Is college affordable? Can can inner city kid get a degree? Yes, they can. Uh, there's there's so many additional. Like you know, I'm just outside of New York City. I know new. In, if you're a, a resident of New York City, they have uh, of New York State. There there are so many programs and plans that if for free schooling at the city schools, which are good schools, et cetera, et cetera. There are opportunities. But then the other part of it is when we talk about that cycle. If they don't have the appropriate counselors uh, or, or whatnot to be able to guide and lead them in the right direction to be able to apply for the appropriate grants or know what the appropriate grants are, what is a Pell Grant, uh, especially if their parents hadn't, haven't gone through that process or aren't around or whatnot. Because now, and then, I mean, if you want to talk about inner city, other issues, incarceration, blah, 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 that all leads, all connected, right? So it can, but, you know, there's, there's, they need to know what's going on. And then the other part in our higher institutions are guilty of this. We advertise, okay, tuition is 90 grand, but we don't put out there. Well, the average student though gets $40,000 in in grants or loans or scholarships. So it actually, that advertised price really isn't that, but when you see, if a kid sees 80 grand to go there, all of a sudden they're like, okay, I can't afford that. I'm not going there. So they don't even apply. They don't even try. Uh, so that's just once again, being part of that system and being typecast to not know how to manipulate it. And that's, that's a big part of it is knowing how to manipulate the, the various elements. So from my understanding, uh, and I saw recently the student debt crisis is now up to $2 trillion, spanning a number of administrations. Uh, I know, you know that student debt problem is a problem unlike uh, any other country uh, experiences. Uh, most countries around the world, especially in Europe and even in Latin America, college and around the world, really, um, college and higher education is free or nearly free, um, in, in our society, um, there's a lot of, um, personal responsibility, you know, and, and taking on at 18 years old, um, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in debt to try to advance your education. Uh, and the way I see student debt, it's a disciplinary tool. Um, if you're under 
tens of thousands, 50, 100, 200 or more, especially if you're going to medical school, dental school, law school, those sorts of things, you might be under uh, $200,000, $300,000 in debt. That's a lifetime of debt, even though the salaries are pretty good. But what student debt is, um, it's a disciplinary tool. It limits your options. It limits your choices. Uh, I think you get like six months and then you got to start repaying it. So if you wanted to travel the world or get involved in activism or if you wanted to volunteer or if you wanted to maybe even teach at a high school or try to give back to the community, um, you might not have that choice. You might not have that opportunity. You might have to get into the workplace uh, if you're a corporate lawyer, or if you're a lawyer, I should say, you know, you might not be able to be a public defender. You know, you might have to get a job with a corporate law firm so you can finally pay back that three hundred, four hundred thousands of dollars of debt or whatever it is nowadays. I think, I think Yale and Harvard, it's like sixty thousand a semester now, or maybe even more uh, for law school. So, um, what do you think about the student debt crisis, and what do you think about it being a disciplinary tool? America is the richest society in world history. There's a lot of countries around the world, much poorer societies that have found a way to pay for higher education. Certainly, uh, Americans can afford it. The way I see uh, the student debt crisis, it's not an economic decision. It's a decision to ensure uh, the youth are disciplined and to ensure that the youth and college graduates transition right into the system. You get, your, you get a job at a corporation and you're locked in for the next 30 years. So, I mean, I'll take it even a step further. Who who is the system created for and by as well? Uh, We talk about systemic, you know, discriminations and and various privileges and so on and so forth. I mean, you know, we spend the most, especially you're talking health care, Christ, we spend by far, we outspend most countries in our health outcomes. I think more than two, two times. I've done right. a pot on this. More than two times the health expenditures of any other country. Yeah. I believe outcome. Cuba spends 5% yeah. of what we spend on health care with about similar outcomes. With I think they're I think we're like 37th, Cuba's 39th, something like that. So they spend 5% of what we do with essentially the same health care outcomes. Yeah, well, I learned. I, so I went to Cuba in 2012, and I, I, I didn't realize that doctors are actually their number one exports. I just had a I, uh, I just had a guy on Cabral. He's a medical doctor. His family's from Cuba, and um, yeah, he says that uh, that that's one of their biggest outputs in in the rest of the world. Cuba is one of the first countries when um, countries are stricken by natural disasters, yeah. Um, yeah. hurricanes, whatever. Um, they're they're always one of the first countries to send waves of very well-trained doctors to go and you know, try to help, try to help these people. And I think that's very admirable. That's awesome. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Um, but you know, get, getting back to it, you know, we spend, we spend the most yet our outcomes are the worst, but at the same time, you know, these schools that, that have these reputations, right. It, it, it's, that money's coming back in by, you know, it's a, it's a very, uh, it, it, it's from within, right? They're graduates, they're going out, they're, they're earning, they're donating back. So they want their legacy, their families, their people, they want to have a, a decision 
making ability, right? Part of that. And and maybe this is conspiracy theory, but I, I'm sorry that things don't happen by accident. And you look at who's making the policies. Again, look at your is Congress and, and those in powers in the states in various places becoming more diverse? Yes, yeah, slightly a little bit, but it's still it's still the same people making the policies and it's those people of privilege that are making the policies that are going to make like why aren't why wouldn't you make policies that back up and defend your agenda your quote-unquote people your who you want to be there i mean it's it's somewhat human nature i guess uh, i wish it wasn't but um you know i i think i think that plays a part of it and, and when you're talking about the debt those are those yeah, there's a lot of a lot of debt, uh, but I think what it does is it masks, like I said before, it already weeds out those and provides less opportunity to those because of the fear of that debt and so on and so forth to where people are being, and then ultimately communities, neighborhoods, cultures aren't getting a seat at the table uh, because of these things. So let's compare and contrast public education, uh, maybe with private education. And I know there's, um, I guess, at least through K through 12, um, charter schools. So I'm not too familiar with what they're all about, um, but I'm all about public education. Um, and uh, that's the way I see it. I think education should be for everyone, not just elites, not just those of privilege, not just those of a certain um, socioeconomic background. I think education is for everyone. So what say you, Dr. Ron? Who's education for? What's it all about? Is it just for elites? Is it for everyone? And then what do you think about just generally public education versus private education? Should we have private schools and charter schools? Or should we just try to reform um, the public education system, which was uh, in America the best in the world uh, after World War II, obviously, you know, the United States wealth uh, after World War II, we had about 6.5% of the world population and about half the world's wealth. So we were a very rich society. That was the pinnacle of American society, wealth and power. Um, but at, t- at a time, you know, the GI Bill and all that kind of stuff made college a lot more affordable. And now we're getting into Keynesian economics, 1945 through maybe roughly 1980, the golden era of capitalism. Um, you know, but again, yeah, the education system as I see it is crumbling, uh, especially public education. Obviously the private schools are doing pretty well. And you want to talk about ivory towers, um, just go ahead and look at, uh, MIT endowment, go ahead and look at Stanford endowment, go look at the 50 plus billion dollars of the Harvard endowment that obviously business is going pretty well for those public, or I'm sorry, those private schools, excuse me. Um, so let's say you again, Dr. Ron, who's education for? What's it all about, and what's what's the difference between public education and private education? Should it just be for elites, or should it be for everyone? No, I mean, I, I it should it should be for everyone, uh, but it's not. I mean, the, the truth is, it's not. Um, it should be. Uh, you know, I'm an advocate of of public education. I my family were public educators. I was a public educator. You know, I believe in public education. Um, now. You know, I have a three-year-old. Obviously, you know, a few years ago, I didn't have that. So I, I have a different perspective now. Um, I, I, there's absolutely a place. So you, you say, should we? Should there even be private 
private education, private schools. I would yeah, say I mean, no. I, I would say no. I'm all about public education. I think we should get rid of these 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 ivory, I guess my ivory question towers is, and stuff. Yeah, I guess my question is how 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 do you do that in a in a quote unquote just by the capitalism nature of our country, right? It's 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 you can't tell somebody no, you can't operate this business. Um, I think. I think there's a place. I guess here's how I'll Here you go, Dr. Ron. Now you're getting into the root and the seas, what I think the larger problem is. I don't want to go too deep into the politics, but I think a for-profit system, whether it's related to healthcare or education, is bad. And here's what I want to do. Okay, so there's certainly problems with public education. Of course, of course. But why can't we reform them? Why can't we improve upon them? And why can't we have options in the community? If you want to focus more on art, why can't we have maybe maybe a specialized school for art and music and that sort of stuff? Why can't we have a, maybe a science and math based and engineering and preparing you know students for that? Maybe someone wants to get into liberal arts and study economic theory. Sure. I mean, I'm not, obviously this is going to cost a lot of money and, and specialized training, but we could make um, the public education system as good as any private in the world. If we put our resources and put our best minds to it, we can have an education revolution, you know? Oh, so I don't disagree with a single word you just said. I, not, not one word do I disagree with that. Um, again, the, the, I mean, the logistics are, are astronomical, the timing, the lag, you know, how does that happen? For example, you know, this is one of the things God, what the 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, you know, just one of the things I thought of in general. Why, you know, why K 12, for example, why does it have to be, especially in this day and age, right? I get it 50 years ago when you didn't have the internet, you didn't have access to sources, um, you didn't have the technologies that we have, right? So you had to, the system was set up to prepare people for factories, right? You've got a bell structure, dot, 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 here, 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 compliance, compliance, right? right. That, I mean, that that's what it is, and that's what it was. But you had a teacher, and there was a textbook, and you didn't have access to these other things. Now we do. So why couldn't, why can't, right, you have all these states, and you have all of these um, standards, right? State standards across the country. And that's why what you said is logistically, I, I totally agree with it, but it's ridiculous because, every, you know, we, over here, we want to teach this, but over here, you know, creation versus evolution, da, 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 and whose politics, whose, whose curriculum do we teach in a public setting? Let's get but, to that. Let's get to oh, that. Hold on. Hold, hold, hold on. But why can't so why can't K twelve just run on a twenty four hour? Why can't there be three shifts like a like a, a a private sector? And if I'm a student in in I'm a seventeen year old junior in high school, you know maybe I have circumstance that I have to work. Uh, why can't I work a, a normal shift and come in? And why can't there be? Why does there have to be five social studies teachers? there at the same times that are in the same things. If we have standards and across a social studies curriculum, for example, all students need to do this, 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 and this, why can't they choose the history content that speaks to them as long as they're meeting that standard? And if they're turning in the same thing to meet the same standard, why does it have to be between the hours of seven and three? Why can't it be, you know what, I'm better between midnight and 5 a.m., and there'd be one social studies teacher there all the time instead of 
four there from blah, 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 to blah, 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 to be able to diversify and hit everybody and all the different things. I mean, just you talk about reform. I mean, maybe that's a, an extreme case, but there are absolutely things that could be done and could be tried, uh, you know, exercising them is a different story. Yeah, I, I, I love this is so my, my podcast is about ideas. It's about philosophy. It's about radical politics. Um, you know, I think radical politics gets maybe a bad rap, especially by elites in the establishment. Like, oh, whoa, this, this person wants to change the system. Yeah, I, I want to change the system. And part of changing the system is getting ideas out there and getting things that are um, maybe theories and trying them and see if they work. Oh, wait a minute. This, this doesn't work too well. Okay, let's scrap it. What did we learn from it? What can we try differently the next time? Unfortunately, politics, and I'm, I'm definitely no conservative. Uh, I don't like either of the two parties. Um, you know, I'm, I, I support working class people, and I, I, I want a classless society, or at least a class uh, a society with minimal hierarchy and a certain class of people that dominates uh, others. You know, I want to, I want a just society. So that's when I, when I say radical politics, that's what I mean. I want to try different ideas though, and, and try to reform society or try, try different ideas and talk to different people. I don't want to, I don't want a school to be run like a factory. Uh, that's when you were saying like different shifts and stuff like that. I don't want it to be run like a factory. I, I, I too much in capitalist society, Western society, American society. Uh, I, I've talked to teachers. I've talked to leaders, uh, principals, that sort of thing. I, I, I hear this all the time. I run my school like a business. I run my school like a, I don't want to, I don't want a teacher to run a school like a business, you know? Um, I, I want a school to be run like a school. I want a school to develop the next wave of leaders, scholars, independent thinkers. Um, I want them to help develop um, people's curiosities and interests. That's what I want that school to develop. I do like having different times or, you know, maybe some of the, some of the learning could be done online. Maybe some of the learning could be done in, in, a, in, a, in a room, in a group setting, maybe some one-on-one, all, all different sorts of stuff. I will, you, just, you said something about seven to three, and I've read studies on this before. Uh, most adolescents' brains don't work very well at seven in the morning. So a lot of schools are going to a little bit later start. Um, so I, I like those ideas. You, you said a couple of things that I really liked, but um, I definitely don't want it to be run like a school, or I'm sorry, like a business, like a school. I don't want a school and a business to run like, similarly. Uh, what I also don't want, you had mentioned, you know, maybe someone has to work because they're from a lower class family or, they, you know, they, they, there's only one parent in the family or maybe there's economic problems and, and, the, and the, the teenager or the child has to has to contribute, you know, financially to help the family out. We've, we've all been there. We've all known those people, maybe even had to do it ourselves. Uh, so that's obviously real problems that we see today. But how about this for radical politics? Um, why should why why should um, I, I don't want I don't want to, I don't want uh, children to be filled the need to to work and, and I wish a society didn't have to be like that. Like I wish you know in your years from whatever five to twenty five or that's usually you know when you're in school and especially graduate school and whatnot. I wish you could be more focused on developing that individual instead of training. And now I want to get into, you know, kind of Chomsky's book, Miseducation. I feel too much, and you kind of said to, about it a little bit too, like the factory setting. I feel too much that school is trying to develop um, the next wave of workers to fit in the system, to be cogs in the wheel, to be trained, to be able to, once they graduate, just work 
day one and fit right in there and to these standardized tests and to make sure they got a certain whatever from the from the curriculum. And I do want to talk about curriculum and development in, in a second. But I, I feel like too much there's uh, an emphasis on training for obedience and conformity and discipline and not as much as fostering uh, curiosity about the world and independent thinkers and creative thinkers and just self-development, like trying to uh, the, the world and the universe. I just had a, a physicist on not too long ago. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's an insane place. The world, where we live, the universe, the solar system, however big or, you know, you can even go into the small like atoms and, and quantum physics. I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, surely there's something uh, every individual is interested in. So I think we got to find that in every student, you know? So what, what say you about all my ramblings? <laughs> well, so, no, and, and I think there's, I, I'm, I'll give you a couple things. Um, I think there, there is, it's the delivery, the obedience element, the, 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 the complicit factory worker, compliant factory worker. It's the, it's the delivery. I think some, and for every, for every good example I give you from industry, you could give me a terrible example and it's vice versa with the education system. But, you know, when you look at places like 3M and design thinking and so on and so forth, I think that is one thing, though, that some pro- the industry that we could take into schools are the design process, ideation, prototyping, so on and so forth, instead of just the delivery of this sage on the stage in front just giving you information uh example my and and i was i i I was lucky i think in this situation and i I published an article about it um in my last two years in k-12 i was fortunate enough to have a director of secondary ed who allowed me to uh, you know I was working on my EDD at the time I was doing a lot of leadership stuff and different edu- change theory and reform stuff and I was able to get his blessing to transform my class it was a history class all I did, I basically took myself out of the equation and I presented hey by the end of this chunk of time which is another thing everything's on a chunk of time which is that's the capitalist system right 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 right. it's time it monopolizes our time you need you know you need to demonstrate a b c and d how you do it i don't care what content you use i don't care so right so so it was basically then an open source classroom where they were working independently um the entire time and i was there kind of just to check in periodically and what they had to do was like let's say for example we were studying the constitution they had to meet these standards how they did it i didn't care so what ended up happening and these were eighth graders right who you know, middle school is a weird time. You know, a lot of there's a lot of apathy in in, in middle school and, and so on and so forth. They had to email me by the end of the week the sources that they were looking at or some questions, and I would use like I would use their questions or their sources to run class on Fridays, um, and then 
I was getting emails from students on American history a Saturday night at 10 o'clock, Sunday morning at 8 a.m., right? So, so they were that engaged, interest, right? They, 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 really they were engaged. engaged. Yeah. And then I had, so I had, we did some career, and I know career exploration for eighth graders. Who knows what you really want to be when you're in eighth grade? I, I don't even know if I still know what I want to be. I, uh, I'm, with you. I'm with you, brother. But, Same. But like, I got, I got, 50 page cookbooks from a, a, a eighth grade student who wanted to open a catering business where she was comparing recipes to the amendments in putting the constitution together. I got um, a, a kid who wanted, was interested in video game programming, who got a free program from MIT and put together a video game of this and, and wrote this short story, this story around it where this historian traveled back in time and had to defeat this evil computer uh, to uncover these American history documents. Like all this insane stuff that I as a teacher could never have thought that creatively to to design these assessments and these assignments. And it was, they were learning the history, but they were doing it and connecting it to things that they were interested in and getting them engaged in all these different areas and all these different elements. And too often, we just don't, we don't, teachers in general are afraid to give up control. And I'm sure that trick, I know that trick, I don't, I'm not, I know that trickles up to administration and and in college and and so on and so forth. I, I, that's the thing with higher ed that I didn't realize, like the higher you go, Nobody wants to make a decision because every nobody wants to be wrong. Everybody's afraid to be wrong. And you're always taught, hey, you learn from failure. You learn from mistakes. That's how you grow. That's how you get better. The higher you go, you know, nobody, it's like an ego thing, right? Nobody's, everybody's afraid to take risk and take chances and nobody wants to be wrong. So no decisions get made. So the status quo just continues to... Uh, I like, I'm a philosopher, so I want to, I want to, sometimes I like the simplest questions. What is education? What is it? What's educate? Let's talk about educational theory. How do people learn? What, what are some theories going on? Like right now you said some different things here. So innovative, like you're a part of an innovative, uh, something or other in your bio. Let's talk about education, educational theories, and how do people learn? How, how's all that stuff work? Work. I mean, you know, you, depending on what you're subscribing. Personally, I, I what do you subscribe. Think? What do you think? I, I subscribe to cognitive theory. You know, I think that you learn from internal and external influences, uh, the, our experiences, things that we see, things that we do, that we've done. Um, you know, that's me. Um, you know, you look at. Vygotsky, cultural cognitive theory, those types of things. Can you go into them a little bit? Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it, I mean, it's basically, you know, where, when you look at it, you know, this is where I am now. This is, or this is what I can, this is what I can do with help. This is what I need to be doing on our own. And you, you find that zone of pro, proximal distance. Like, what is that gap? And then, then you kind of you kind of work to fill in those gaps. Um, you know, you know, the whole behavioral thing of rewards and punishments. I, 
I don't think that has lasting power. Uh, you know, I agree. As far as far as, as, far as I'm concerned, um, what about standardized you know, tests? What about this teach to test stuff, the standardized test stuff? You you memorize a bunch of stuff, you regurgitate it, and then a week later you can't even you probably can't remember. 90% of what you just studied. What, what about yeah, that no. stuff? I how, mean, I, it, how about assessments in general? How, how should we assess people? Should we even assess people? Well, I'll take... questions I ask. I get to the most basic, elemental, foundational no. questions. And I love... So, so yeah, the standardized assessment is... is I, I'm not a fan of it. And, and we go back to race and culture and things yeah, like that. There's I mean, a lot there's, of differences between yeah. racial groups or minorities and that sort of thing. And here's the reason, okay. at least what, what, what we think is because white people design the tests, right? That's, isn't that, uh, I like to simplify it, but that's pretty much the idea, right? You know, the, the, um, so I did my dissertation. I'll come back to this, but I did my dissertation on looking at how white teachers are able to, if white teachers are able to authentically connect with students of color in their classroom uh, because of some things that I had seen uh, in the school that I was at. And so I wanted to look at this and in my, you know, the, 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 the number one time period of upward mobility by people of color in this country were, was the decade following Brown versus Board of Ed. And don't, I'm not calling for segregated schools, so don't please don't anybody listening to this get it twisted. I, but yeah, what I, I am people and, and, and any right, four of them are related to us. But, no, I'm but, kidding, I'm kidding. But, what, but what can't be forgotten or what can't be overlooked is that when schools were unsegregated, 90% of the teachers of color were laid off. So all, you know, the, the greatest upward migration of people of color in this country were educated by people of, of color. And that's not to say that they're better than white teachers or what. It, no, but it's a different approach. And, th- and there was a different approach. Like today, you know, when you look at K-12 schools today, anytime you look at African-Americans or, or it's all in marginalized or compromised situations, it's never, it, it's not. Um, it's not from a good perspective and that's not, but that's not the perspective that the segregated schools took. Um, I, I think that, I, I think that race is, is definitely a factor in cultural upbringing is a, is a factor, but I also think that class and socioeconomic yes. status is, is a big factor too. And of course, you know, in this country, there tends to be more white people in middle to upper class, right. Than, than, than elsewhere. So I think that's one of the reasons why you find more people in, in leadership type positions. But I think that, you know, there's a little bit maybe more diversity with, um, you know, post-civil rights uh, era movement uh, and that sort of stuff, which is all fantastic. But I, I still think whether uh, it's, uh, regardless of the race of, of the student, uh, if they're coming from a, a lower class background where they might not have two incomes at home, where they're forced right. to work nights, where they, they don't have anyone in their family to ch- try to guide them through the, the process and picking careers and maybe taking out a loan at 18 years of age of tens of thousands of dollars, that's going to be right. a huge uh, barrier for this person. I did, you, right. you talked about upward mobility. I just wanted to – you can keep, keep talking here because you're rolling. Uh, but right now the United States in the um, Global Social Mobility Index, which is basically you know can you move upwards in class and society – 
Uh, we are 27th on the list, just above Cyprus, Poland, Latvia, and Slovakia. Uh, at the top of the list, list is probably some of the, the Scandinavian countries, uh, which maybe a lot of people uh, have, stu- have studied this could guess. At the top of the list, we got Denmark, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Iceland, Netherlands, Switzerland, the same, the same cast of countries that are on top of happiness scale, uh, healthcare, um, yeah. education, all those sorts of things. So those, those, those yeah. countries tend to take this stuff seriously. Yeah. And, you know, you asked, should we assess or should, should we even assess? And, um, you know, in the medical, maybe you experienced this. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think there needs to be standards for brain surgeons, right? But a lot of, but a lot of medical schools these days, and, and it's not to say they're not being assessed, but it's pass-fail. There's no longer the traditional A, B, C, D, F, or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah. So, for example, the medical school I was at, we set standards. Here are the standards or, or the outcomes that you have to meet. And there were there was like 50-some are they, are they reasonable or ridiculous? No, they were they were they were they were pretty reasonable. That's what I found in graduate and, and, school. And, and, the the expectations into, are very reasonable, very reasonable expectations. You, yeah, and then when you get into obviously like clinical skills, it's it's skill based, so you have to demonstrate it, you have to prove it. So you either can or you can't. Um, so to pass the course, you had to pass each of the standard that fit within that course. So maybe there was a, a team-based learning standard. Maybe there was a, a PBL problem-based learning standard. Maybe there was a, an OSCE exam standard, et cetera, et cetera. So you had to pass each of those. And if you passed all of those, you know, you, you would pass the course. And then, you know, they did standard setting to see what that was. Because, you know, when you look at, traditional education and, and I, I've argued this forever. Let's look at an English class, for example, right? It's an accumulation of points. And my least favorite part of teaching, my least favorite part of being a professor of anything is grading. I hate grading. I can't stand it. Um, <laughs> it, it but so it's an accumulation of points. So if I'm teaching, my my job is to get my students to be able to do whatever by the end of whatever. So if I'm teaching you how to write a paragraph, for example, week one, I teach you how to write a, 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 a subject, week two, a predicate, uh, week three, and I'm not an English teacher, so I'm just throwing these things out there. Week three, it's a, it's a single sentence. Week four, it's a compound sentence. Then it's a paragraph. Then it's whatever, a whole story, right? So if I, in you know week one, I fail on how to write a subject and then I fail on how to write a predicate and then I fail uh, or I get a D in the blah, blah, blah. But at the end, when it comes to putting it all together and being able to write the paragraph, I ace it and I demonstrate that I'm able to write the paragraph. In my mind, that should be an A or a pass. Yeah. But we're keeping those scores from what I would consider practice or formative assessments that shouldn't count uh, is part of that, right? So I failed these three parts, even though I can demonstrate that I can, I can do the standard, I'm going to get a a C because I messed up early on and, and I don't take into account the effort of fixing or correcting or growing as I'm going. So two things I want to get to. 
first off in Texas, which again, they do not put a high importance on uh, public education here with at least how they pay their teachers. And I've talked to some teachers down here in Texas and they talk about like the standardized test scores. I think there's like the star test. That's like the Texas, whatever standardized state test. And they have to do so well uh, to move on to the next grade. And they even attach teachers salaries to how well these students perform on these tests. And, you know, you can't, predict or you don't even have a say in you know what students are putting in your classroom let's say someone's a really really good teacher and everyone knows it so they put all the problem students in that person's classroom you know what i mean so i just think it's that's absolutely ridiculous and again i want to go back to standardized tests and you know there's differences between minority groups and that kind of stuff and i even heard now that um a lot of colleges are doing away with the SETs and ACTs, which I think is a, it's a great thing. So what yeah, do you think about are. standardized tests and linking teachers' salaries and performance to them? I think that's absurd. Yeah, this will be a short sentence. This will be short. Yeah, it is absurd. The, the, the state I used to teach in, the, those conversations came up 15 years ago or so. And, yeah, I mean, you can't. It, you can't do that. You, you just can't. There's there's too many factors and, and there's – yeah, you can. So how do people learn? I, I know when I was looking at uh, – oh, I want to do one more thing here. One more thing here, then we'll go to maybe um, learning styles and whatnot, problem-based learning. I remember that buzzword when I was um, uh, looking at some grad schools. Everyone was talking about, oh, we're a problem-based learning school, whatever that means. Um, maybe it has some meaning to you. I just uh, – whatever. But anyways, um, uh, what I wanted to say was um, – oh, yeah. So in, in graduate school, though, I remember – um, we, every single test, every single test, and we took tons of them. We took tons and tons and tons of tests, clinical tests, competency tests, uh, lab tests. Uh, this is just grad school, but of course I took a lot of undergrad too. And we would always get these graphs like, oh, this is how the distribution is going to look. We want uh, 50 people in class, give or take. I'm just rounding a number here. Oh, we want to have, uh, you know, 12 A's and we're hoping to have like 26 B's and, you know, maybe. Uh, the bell curve. Yeah, the bell curve. That, that's that's absurd. Like they put so much research and portosis or all these words, these ridiculous statistic words. And they never meant anything to me, and I never cared about any of the graphs. Uh, and you know, for, but for some reason, if the test was too hard, they would throw out a couple of questions to make that little distribution look a little bit better. But I, I just always I held all that stuff in contempt. Like we're just trying to learn and, and get a job and pass the licensing exam and that that sort of thing. Um, but you know, I think that whether or not I got an 81 or an 86, I mean, what's, what's the difference? I, I, I like the idea of, of pass fail. Some of the, some of the lab, uh, incompetencies were just kind of pass fail. Did you essentially know what you're supposed to know or did you not, you know? Um, but yeah, they were just seemed to be obsessed. Like, Oh, we, we can't have too many C's. We got to make it uh, a little bit easier. Oh, way too many people got A's. We got to make some harder questions. I, I just hated that stuff. But you know, it, but your school, your your Harvard, your Yale's drives them berserk because they have this reputation, right? So now, they 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 want they want those those things uh, to to. Looks I agree. Research papers, or you know, or I don't know, you know, it looks good in uh, maybe classrooms on top and talking about educational theory, I guess, uh, which is maybe um, maybe we can transition to. So you had mentioned. Um, problem-based learning, and maybe you can talk about some of the some of the more theories, and and I kind of want to talk about like 
I think at least I, the way I understand problem-based learning, it's, you know, students kind of learn a little bit on their own. They kind of get a project and they kind of get to run with it kind of independently. And it sounds like that was the, the method that you, the students you've taught in the past uh, did really good with. Yeah, no, so, so you know, you talk, you asked how, how do people learn? And we talk about problem-based learning, team-based learning. I mean, I, I firmly believe that we learn by doing applying concepts, applying content, um, working with it, manipulating it, not just sitting there listening to it uh, or being told things, right? That's how you learn how to ride a bike. You got to ride a bike. Somebody can tell you, yeah, you sit on it, you hold the handles, you keep your balance. You pe- but no, until you go out there and actually do it, you're not going to do it. So, yeah. yeah you can read a manual on riding a bike, right? But that's not going to help you. I think it'd be a lot easier to just go out and ride it for 15 minutes and figure right. it out, right? So, so what what the movement is has been lately and and I, I happen to agree with it when we look at active learning um engaged learning you know all of that foundational crap like vocabulary definitions uh you know this person did this this person said that we can do that whenever students can look at that stuff whenever so why are we wasting class time with the so-called expert or with the other students in there uh, going over foundational stuff that they can just get anywhere. Um, so like problem-based learning, especially like in the medical fields, um, in engineering, I'm in an engineering school now, it's the, the, the students will do pre-work where they'll read articles or they'll look at stuff, you know, that'll give them some foundational stuff. And then when they come in, it's a case or it's a problem, uh, and then they'll work within their groups uh, to solve those, and then it's it's uh, open to discuss- like, so for example, a, a TBL, team-based learning, typically what a class would look like is they come in, they'll have a um, an individual quiz based on the content they were supposed to read before they came in. It's like a 10-question quiz just to ensure that they, they learn the material. They then take the same exact quiz as a group with the team and those scores can then be used as a grade usually it's 60 40 for that 60 on the individual quiz 40 percent for the for the team quiz right uh so it provides some accountability to your group right to, to get them going and then you have these cases so it's an application question where they're actually applying that content so maybe it's a you know patient came in showed blah 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 and they have to figure out, and then it's a it's a multiple choice question potentially, and all the groups are looking at it at the same time. And the thing is, all of the answers could be potential correct answers, but they, as a group, have to sort through and figure it out which one's the best response. But then, where it kind of gets unique is, as the facilitator in the room instead of the teacher in the room. I then have every group share their response by holding up a, a card like A, B, C, D, E, whatever it is, at the same time. So they can't look around the room and say, oh, they did this or they said this right at the same time. And if it's a good question, you're going to get a mix of responses. So now as the teacher, it's all about asking questions, right? You like you're asking questions right now. You like you hear things, it prods another question. So now I might start here. Okay, you guys went with A. What made you go with A? Well, okay, but why not B? Why not C? 
why did you guys not go with A? Why did you go with D? So now I can have them explore and justify all these nuances of the question and kind of learn from each other and what their thought process was, where they're exploring these things. Um, you can do that then, and maybe the next one is then maybe they have to design a bridge uh, using renewable materials that's both cost effective and last forever. I, I, I don't know, whatever it may be. And then in their groups right now, they're using each other's resources to apply that foundational content into something applicable to learning on how to actually um, put that bridge together and, and so on and so forth. So it's bringing these different things. But the point is, it's it's more of applying the stuff in class as opposed to sitting in a lecture hall and hearing somebody speak, whereas they could have just, they probably just showed slides and they read the damn slides, which is absurd. Good <laughs> um, old PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. So yeah, PowerPoint, uh, standardized tests. Boy, I've had enough of those in my educational career. Yeah, I, I, I have a, uh, when I walk into a quote unquote training and they start putting slides up, I just, uh, here I we know go. it's going to be terrible. <laughs> All right. So, um, you are a representative of the educational system sitting in uh, your ivory tower over there. So I'm going to tell you some things about my educational background that I didn't like. And you're going to have to speak for it. You're going to have to defend your, your, your ilk or whatever. So, okay, I went to a large state school in the Northeast, right? My educational experience, some of these science classes, 500 students in the class. So is that how students yeah. learn in a class of five? Literally, I think it was like 500 students. Um, and then we had these cookie cutter, uh, labs where we get this little cookbook and we have to write down some numbers, do a little Bunsen burner experiment and the numbers never check out. And we're supposed to go steps one, two, three, four, five, and six. And then, you know, we get quizzed on it. Uh, I just don't think that's how science works. I don't think that that's how Newton was discovering calculus and, and his theories of gravity. Uh, and then let's also go to, um, I remember like back in like high school more so or, you know, middle school uh, teachers with their lesson plans in the curriculum uh, and they have to get through a certain point, you know, by the end of the week. But all of a sudden there's a good discussion in class and maybe it's a little bit off topic and maybe it has nothing to do with in the little lesson plan book. But maybe the students are engaged and asking good questions and the teacher has to be the moderator and say, listen, I'd love to talk about this right now. But we have to get to how whatever was discovered. We have to talk about who uh, who died in, in the battle of such and such or what was the implications of it or whatever. You know what I mean? So uh, what about the large class sizes? Is that how students learn best? What about these cookie cutter labs? Is that how science works? And what about what's in the lesson plan that's so important? Why can't we go a little bit off the beaten path a little bit sometimes? So I'm going to answer the third one first. <laughs> and. and I told you I'm an advocate of public ed, but that's a downfall of public ed because it's made by, it's state funded, the state sets the standards, they have to get to the certain thing, whereas the private K-12 sector doesn't have that red tape that they necessarily have to go through. But we'll move beyond that. Um, so no, 500 people, and I went to a large mid-Atlantic state school. And I think our, um, our state schools play each other sometimes in sports occasionally. Yeah, they do. I think you've had a little more success, but uh, that's all right. At least uh, on the football field, I think on the... On the, on the hardcore, yeah, hardcore, you guys it. are pretty good. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had, I had, uh, I had classes with 500 kids uh, in a class. 
and especially as an 18 year old. I mean, and that's when that happens, right? Yeah. When you're a it was like bio 101. That was like, when, it's right. like ridiculous. And it's like, if you didn't think you're going to be a biologist or a scientist, if you weren't sure and you go into a class of 500 people, you're probably going to be like, you know what? Maybe I, maybe this isn't the, the right path for me. You know what I mean? It scares people out of a, a career in science, technology, and engineering when you see the 500 students, I remember a chemistry class, and someone was like, hey, the person sitting next to you, either you or him is going to fail this class, a chemistry, organic chemistry or something. You're like, holy cow, first first lecture, that's some that's some great words. I'd love to hear that. I'd love to hear that right. kind of stuff, you know? And, and, and well, you couldn't sell me, but you could try to sell me if you're talking about 21, 22-year-old junior and seniors who have been through the system for a while and at least kind of know how to manipulate it. But now you're talking about you're talking about 17 and 18 year old kids who are coming out of high school who probably sat in a class of 2025. And now you're putting them into this huge classroom where they're on their own for the first time, potentially a lot of them with 500 other students. And then you want them to be successful and set them up for success. And no, you can't do that. Um, You know, and that's even that aside, the other element that you talk to about it, you know, you talk about it, you know, when you first start, you have certain, criteria that you have to meet or certain prerequisites before you go on. And that's one of the things, even at the school I'm at, it's a the school I'm at now is in total about 10,000 students. So it's, it's significantly smaller than the schools that we're speaking about that we went to. Yeah. Um, but even one of the things that I have to work with fa- that I hear from faculty is like, you know, I, I teach, uh, I'm a philosophy teacher, but I have engineer. How do I make engineering students they they have to take my class because it's a prerequisite to graduate, but they don't care. They couldn't care less about philosophy or, or whatever. Right? All they care about is engineering. So how do I how do I do that? And that that's where I think I, I'll always go back to the delivery of things. Um, you know, I, I would always hear teachers when I was in K-12, uh, money, money, money. We don't have money. I need this. I want this projector. I want that projector. And, and the schools would always say budget. I never, I never asked for any of that stuff. And I didn't quite frankly think it mattered. Like if I, if I delivered something one way on, on, let's say back in the day overheads and you use the PowerPoint, if it, if it's, if it, the content, if they're getting the point, what the hell does it matter if it's shiny and flashy versus whatever. And I think that just gives an opportunity for you as a teacher to be more creative. And quite frankly, that's our job to be more creative. So, you know, when it comes to that type of thing of, you know, I'm not a biology major, but I have to take this. That's where what I, my encouragement is you you need to know who your students are. I get it. That's hard with 500, but there's gotta be ways that they can use their majors content and apply it into philosophy or biology or chemistry, draw those connections, whatever, to, to get them engaged. And that's when we look at universal design of learning. It's, it's, that's the big thing. Universal design of learning. This sounds interesting. Go on. Well, we have to, we have to provide multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation and multiple means of, of working with the content. So like, you know, the whole, I'm, you know, you can't just sit here, take a midterm, sit here, take a final. Like, there's got to be multiple ways, like projects, products, uh, uh, um, written. Uh, why does it have to be a test? Why can't they do it? Well, let's a talk writing? about this. What's the purpose of this stuff? Is the purpose of this stuff to test well, them and to make sure they're getting the right um, 
the right answers or they're picking up the right things that we think is important? Or is it tried to train them to think critically about the world and to teach them to problem solve? You know what I mean? Well, what's the person? What's the purpose? It, it, I guess a little bit of both, right? It should be the latter, what you yeah. just said. Yeah. It should be. Uh, and, and quite frankly, a lot of times, a lot of professors, it's they just want to weed people out. Yeah. Uh, they're not trying to they're not trying to 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 get them to learn or grow or weed out classes. I can't I can't right. remember how many times uh, oh did you take such and such? Did you take, you know, calculus? Oh, here's another experience I wanted to talk to talk to you about. You know, you have to, you know, in certain professions, you know, you have to have a certain, you have to have this many biology labs, you know, to get into whatever, the medical profession. If you want to do engineering, you have to have at least this math, which sure, I mean, if we're putting uh, rockets into space and satellites into orbit, yeah, we probably should have a, you know, a background in, in math. But I remember, again, going, getting weed out classes just triggered me. I remember taking a science class, I think it was like pre-calculus, uh, trigonometry, that kind of stuff. Um, and we had a brilliant, brilliant teacher, instructor, uh, working on his PhD in mathematics, a uh, Russian, uh, gentleman, I believe, um, uh, he could barely speak English. The first day of class, he said, uh, I just tested, uh, at the highest or at the lowest possible competency for them to allow me to speak you know, in broken <laughs> English for them to allow me to teach this class. Uh, when we would ask him how to do things on the board, he would just go into elaborate mathematics you know, formulations and that sort of thing. And he was brilliant, no question about it. But unfortunately, his English stunk and nobody got much out of his class. Uh, you know, yeah. if, he, if he could understood, and this is not, I, I'm not saying this because I had a unique experience. I talked to a lot of different people, not just at the school I went to, but people that go into science and that sort of thing. Uh, this, this professor that I had or whatever was working on his PhD and doing research, I would say the least important thing, his lowest priority uh, at that time was teaching this dumb class, you know, college trig or, or whatever. Um, he was doing it because he had to. Doing it because he had to, yeah. And so, like you were saying, like some of these people taking – I love philosophy. I wish I could have taken more in college, but I had a certain route that didn't have me take a lot of philosophy. But wouldn't it be cool if, um, you know, students had a little bit more flexibility uh, in terms of their path and maybe – you want to go into a certain profession, but maybe you want to do a little bit more philosophical studies in your science instead of maybe advanced math. Um, but what do you think about, you know, the emphasis? I like the flexibility in terms of like, you know, people choosing their, their path. I guess this is, this is a different point, but what do you think about my experience and how teaching was, you know, maybe not a big emphasis. We got this brilliant mathematical mind. No one's going to discredit this, this professor I had or whatever adjunct uh, instructor that I had. And that's another thing. These colleges and universities with these billion-dollar endowments, instead of getting tenure, they'll get graduate students to teach these classes. Instead of getting really good educators and people that are passionate about learning, they're going to get someone that's doing their Ph.D. that has to teach this course uh, you know, to get through with whatever their program is, um, instead of making sure that, Hey, everyone in this class gets the, gets what's you know presented in, in trigonometry. We probably have waves of doctors that took that class and, you know, statisticians that took that class, but, uh, you know, it wasn't because of what they learned. They probably had to do a lot of problems and, and, and do their own independent route. You gotta, you gotta read the book. Cause if you go to the class, you're not getting much out of this guy, at least, you know, in terms of the uh, in terms of the discussion, or why did why did you choose this method to to solve it and not that method? So, uh, but yeah, what do you think about 
you know, the, the university's saving money by not – the tenure system is great because you get that stability and you get that uh, security and you get to work on your research interests. But also, you know, you have to pick up a course load, um, but it, it costs money, you know, to, to give people stability and tenure. It's a lot cheaper to get a graduate student, force them to teach it, and, uh, you know, whether or not everyone anyone gets anything out of the class – who cares? Because if they're bringing in grant money, that's that's the number one. You know, as long as as long as that research, uh, as long as that research um, paper that that person's working on is, is getting some big grant money, that's all we care about. You know. So what about the priorities of, of higher ed generally? Uh, and do you see some of the things and the experiences I had? Have you seen some of these experiences or had some of them? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's I don't have a solution. And I'm not going to deny it either. I mean, it, I said it way back at the beginning. It's all about research and, and uh, more so than the ability to teach and, and even wanting to teach. What do you think um, about tenure? What do you think about the security? What do you, about the, what do you think about the, the tenure system? And, and yeah, I, I know a lot of people are attacking it. Uh, it, it is expensive it, to pay these uh, professors and allow them basically a lifetime appointment right at the university. But as, in terms of job security for the individual, that's great. That's what everyone aspires to, right? Right. It's so it's a couple things. Yeah. I mean, it depends on your perspective, I guess. A, it's not easy to get. No, uh, it's not. It's not like they're just handing. Right. So in K-12, it's you put in three years, you get tenure. Uh, and they, in essence, unless you kill somebody, they can't get rid of you. Yeah. Um, that's more of a hot button topic, I would think. Um, you know, the, the, the tenure track stuff in higher ed is not easy to get. Um I have a friend down here. He was, this is his second institution, six years of teaching at one, six years of teaching in another, got shut down both times. It's harder and harder yeah. than ever to get tenure from what, and, I, from and, what I've heard. And I guess, I guess that part to me justifies it to an extent. And I know there's collateral damage on the other end and in other places, but you have people that are, they got to do a lot and they're working. It's obviously it's a passion for them and so on and so forth in order to go through that process and to get to that point. What, what he um, was saying was he just didn't publish enough papers. He needed yeah, at least three yeah, more papers than he published. Yeah. That was the big issue. The, the travesty is what do they do once they get it? Um, because, yeah, our institutions hiring more and more adjuncts and more and more gra- yeah absolutely 100% absolutely. and it's but the quality is going down for the, the the costs are going up up but the quality of the education is going down well, if you're getting a tenured professor teaching a class and you're getting an adjunct you can't tell me that the same quality learning experience right no i see that's where i disagree not completely i just don't think you can make that generalization because i've seen a lot of like, for example, like I said, we have a school of engineering, a school of business, um, uh, and a lot of the adjuncts and people that are brought in are highly skilled professionals in the field and actually want to teach. So they have that content knowledge, and they also have more of a desire, not all, but some, a lot of them to actually teach and learn how to teach. Whereas sometimes the tenured, uh, it trust, look, I worked with surgeons for a long time. You try they're, to tell They're doing surgeons, the bare minimum, right? They're teaching us right. whatever the minimum try, amount yeah, to teach. And you try to tell do. them that what they're doing, there's a better way of doing it and see how far you get. 
<laughs> uh, whereas, whereas that grad assistant or that adjunct at times are much more sponge-like and willing to take feedback. Um, so, I, you know, I just don't think you can make the generalization, sure. I, but I totally get where I absolutely understand where public opinion in in the public perception of you know you know you're bringing an adjunct you're paying and that's one of the fights you know the the one school that i i adjunct at um over here in uh we just were on strike last year and that but that was one of the things about adjunct pay and then uh same benefits or not benefits as teaching faculty and then you know but then from their side of things it was well they should pay the, the faculty more and less adjuncts and so on and so so you know you have different unions and, and different yeah, different people too. are fighting for different things i mean you know for for sure let me uh... that was that was real quick for me that was one of the things so having been in public and private that is one of the things that from the inside I did like about K-12, the fact that it, there was collective bargaining and it was it was somewhat universal across the board. We might not have always been happy with what was presented and what we got, but everybody was kind of in the same boat. So you didn't have that favorites and this, that, and the other uh, when you had that collective bargaining. And I know there's other, we could probably go on for another four hours about. Uh, we really could. That. We're pro, right. Hey, we're pro-union on Necessary Illusions. We are a working-class podcast. We are a pro-union podcast. When you there go you against go. concentrated wealth and power in any society, and especially one where uh, money is so important, uh, money is even speech. Uh, I talked about this on the pre-call. It takes about $7 billion to run for president in the United States. I don't got that kind of cheese lying around. I know you got a helicopter pad and about... 15 bedrooms and 10 bathrooms there. I still don't think you got 7 billion to run for president though. No. So let me, so it's my turn to ask the question then. Would you want to be the president? Oh, heck yeah. Why not? Sure. You can have it. I'm in. I got a lot of, I, Hey, if you've listened to any of my podcasts, which is not a prerequisite to come on here, you know, I got a lot of ideas and a lot of things uh, to say about stuff. Uh, so let's get back into it. My favorite author, Noam Chomsky, uh, one of my most, um, I don't know, awakening, enlightening books about the educational system, his book entitled Miseducation. So let's throw out some of more of uh, Mr. Noam Chomsky's ideas. He's written over 100 books. Uh, he's a professor, uh, was at MIT, now he's at Arizona. Um, his background is in linguistics, but has a lot of things to say about the educational system. Uh, so I'm really just kind of throwing some of his ideas out there, but it's a filtering system. It's to filter out problems. It's to bog people down with stupid assignments, um, to make sure that they are obedient, to make sure that they are disciplined, to make sure that they'll do whatever stupid assignment just to get to the next grade. And the problem people, the ones that are filtered out, the people that go to the principal's office, they're the ones that are labeled disruptions. They're the ones that are going to say, I... I don't want to do this stupid assignment. I'm going to do this job. This has nothing yeah. to do with my life. This has nothing to do with the real world. Uh, and what he kind of says is the people with the advanced degrees, with the master's degrees, with the PhDs and the educational uh, degrees, um, with the law degrees and 
the political science PhDs and all the people that are in charge of kind of designing the system, you know, the system that we all find ourselves in, those tend to be the most indoctrinated people. And it's kind of obvious. I mean, when you go through 20, 20 some years of schooling, you know, at least 12 plus four plus another three or four or however many, you know, at the end, you're very disciplined. You'll do any assignment. You'll do a 30 page paper on anything to get that PhD. Maybe it's a hundred page paper. Uh, but what we tend to find at the end is those are the people that are running society, but they're also the ones that are the most indoctrinated, you know, the people that are filtered out tend to be the one that ask, you know, questions that are a little bit difficult, you know, tend to think outside the box a little bit, tend to say, hey, this teacher can't think his way out of a, you know, wet paper bag, and I'm not going to do this assignment because it's pointless. So what say you about that stuff? Well, first of all, dropping Wu-Tang references, <laughs> anytime you want to do that, Wu-Tang go forever. right ahead. Wu-Tang forever. <laughs> it's funny because I think I went the exact opposite. Um, the higher I got, the more uh, probably of a pain I was in my bosses and employers' uh, backside in terms of asking those questions, pushing envelopes, um, and so on and so forth, um, which probably didn't help me out back in the day it too tends much. Not but to. It tends not no, to help you out. No, right, right. But that said, you know, you can absolutely in our system, we, you know, we always use, even the teachers at the school that I used to do, you know, if you can play school, like you can play school and you can like, unless you're literally trying not to like high school, middle school, whatever, you know, if you play school and you show up and da, 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 like, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. Right. It, it's, it's being able to manipulate that system uh, and, and, figuring that out and, and, and you can get through, which is no, that's no, um, that's no high praise for the, for the education system that, that you can just do that. You know, I, and this probably goes against what does go against, I guess, probably what I should stand for, or what I should say, but I firmly believe that in this day and age, I get it. The system is set up that you need a credential, you need a degree to get the job, et cetera, et cetera. I am convinced if I have a passion about something, I on my own can informally, if I know the appropriate databases, channels, resources, and have access to them, which anybody has access to anything these days. You are well-trained to think critically about the world. Wouldn't you agree? Sounds like you are. Yeah, I mean, and I, and that's where it comes back down to what you said before. What's the point is being able to, it's, you know, I, we always said it, it's not to teach you everything, but to be able to know how to access this. You're not going to know everything, but you need to be able to, access the information or figure it out when you come to that problem that you need to know. I'm not, I don't know about the tax law and this and that, but if something comes up, I know where to turn, how to access things, how to find out and how to figure it out, how to ask the right questions. And, and that's what it comes down to with that critical thinking. And I, I, I so this is what Chomsky says. This is exactly what you're getting into. Let's talk about biology. You can go to a biology library, right? And there's tens of thousands of books on the wall. 
but you got a biologist there. He's going to know what, or he or she, of course, they're, they're going to know what books to go to, what sections of the book to go to. They're going to know what to filter out. It's not necessarily, there's so much information about anything, whether it's biology, political science, law, education, whatever. But when you talk to an expert, you're an expert on education, you're going to know what to filter out. What's garbage? What's not? Okay, that was in the 70s. We don't even think about that anymore. You know, you're, you're going to know what to filter out and then you're going to know where to go uh, and you're going to go kind of what to, you know, what, what, what to emphasize, you know, and that's if I put if you put me in, in a room of 10,000 books about education, I wouldn't even know where to to begin, but if I if I talk to you a little bit and you're like, hey, why don't you try this book, this Our book, that book, yeah. And yeah, that sort of thing, you know, it, it's you can't possibly read a hundred thousand books on education, and, and I'm sure there's at least that many out there. So you got to know the right ones to, to to look at, the right sections to look at, the right maybe even authors to look at, but you got to know what to filter out too, because you you just can't, you're not a walking encyclopedia, you know, so you have to know what to focus on. Yeah, no, I, listen. I have a doctorate degree. I am not by any means nowhere near one of the smartest people I know. And I had I had opportunity and I knew how to manipulate and work with what opportunities I was given to to be able to to get that degree. That by no means do I think uh, uh, you know there are other I it was funny because I was at the one medical school and this colleague of mine so one of the admin assistants came over and was was at, said something that uh we wanted to go in a different direction and i i corrected her for lack of a better word and hey we want to do this and, and here's why and the other guy this other colleague of mine was sitting there, he's like see that's what happened that's what a that's what a doctor degree uh get you or, or will do for you like he was putting her down saying like and i'm and i like i had to step in right there like no, stop man the degrees degrees don't mean anything degrees just mean that you had an opportunity and you took advantage of that opportunity it's to get your foot in the door you know and what you do with that right. opportunity right yes i mean not everybody not everybody's fortunate to have the opportunity in it and if they did, I can I'm firmly convinced there'd be a lot more people with those letters and those degrees. We, so. I'm trying to do this podcast without credentials. Like, you know, I'm essentially a man of mystery here. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's hard, right? It's hard to get people to take you seriously without. I'm going to have you on as the as the title. This is going to be, you know, Doctor Ron. It's yeah, hard. But, if but, I had, if but, I had Joe Schmo on here to talk about education, it's hard to get people to take you seriously. If I'm going to say Dr. Ron's going to talk about education, I, some, some people are going to take it a little bit more seriously, you know, with those credentials. So isn't it hard to, to make people take notice without credentials? But it's crazy because you talk about the miseducation. I mean, anybody sees something on, on Twitter or Instagram, they think it's a fact and it's research based right. and it's from a legit source. So, I mean, that's the other thing, like these, that's the that's the downfall, I guess, of the open sourcing and so on and so forth. Yeah. Is anybody can put anything out. You just have to be able to filter through, like you said, right. and know what's legit and not. We can talk to biology, you know, biology uh, route again because the human body is insanely complex and in just how organisms work. But you know, anyone could anyone could study biology and put together, um, you know. Uh, a string of factoids and sound like they know what they're talking about. But I, I have a, a biologist that studied for X amount of years and, and, and has a PhD in research on whatever genetics or something like that. I'm probably going to take that person, you know, a little bit more seriously. Although maybe that person that's been on, on the internet 
stringing together factoids has something to say as well. Um, but you know, especially when you're talking about medicine and the human yeah, body right. and doing surgery, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to go the route of, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more formalized, uh, education. Although, you know, things like, yeah. I think there's differences between like the hard sciences and the humanities. Like, I think you have a little bit more leeway in the studies of economics, political science and history than you do, you know, like we talked about maybe rocket science and putting a satellite in orbit. You know, you probably should have some ideas of physics and and uh and math but uh as, as it relates to education everyone has an opinion everyone has gone through some degree of formalized education you know obviously some people right. go farther than others but you know we tried to we tried to pin down some some theories and it, it's hard how do people learn you know do we have any great answer for it probably a hundreds and thousands of different answers out there of how people learn and there's still probably not one consensus like this is how people learn you have to do it this way you know what i mean well, the nuances were all different. So you're, you're, it's not like you're working with static uh, uh, figures, right? Like every variable and experience that we've gone through in our lives, you, you may do something, you may try, I may try a technique with you and it may work beautifully. And it, I may try the same technique with somebody else, even from the same place you grew up with, and it works miserably. Um, so it's just so it's so nuanced and so so tough and just so complex so let's go to the curriculum development you've you've done some of those things curriculum development who should say who should who should design the curriculum who should say that this is what we learn and this is what we're going to stick to should it be a government should it be someone with a PhD? Should it be someone in, a, in the ivory towers in a leadership position? Should members of the local community have a say? Should students have a say? Should teachers have a say? I love democracy. Should everyone have a little bit of a say? At the end of the day, you know, there, there's going to have to be a couple people at least at minimum in a room putting together that curriculum. So what say you about all those ideas? Who should design the curriculum of what students are learning? I so like democracy, answers. so I say a little bit of everything. I think parents teachers, leadership, PhDs. Uh, I, I think it'd be cool for students and that flexibility uh, type thing. So you, you've done some curriculum development. What do you think about all that stuff? No, I mean, you just hit the net, head on the net, nail on the head. Yeah. Um, it should be, it should be a mix of everybody um, depending on the level, I guess. Like, so for example, in higher ed, um, if I'm running a, uh, if I'm running a, an accounting school or a school of business, I want some business leaders. I want some CEOs. I want maybe they're alumni, maybe they're not. Ideally, both. I want faculty. I want students. I want administration all involved because they're all bringing various things. You need that perspective of where the students are coming from. You need that perspective of where they need to go, what's going on in industry, these places where we're in theory preparing them to go for a career if that's what they want to do, right? So all of those perspectives need to come into play. Um, you also have accreditation boards, though, that have to answer to all these things, right? I can't speak. I've worked with accreditation boards in terms of preparing reports. I've obviously never been on one. Uh, you know, they're comprised of various people from different institutions across the board. I assume an accreditation board accrediting a school of business is going to have business leaders and so on and so forth that help make up those standards for what I know in, in the LCME with the medical field, 
you know, you have physicians, retired physicians, et cetera, et cetera, that help make up the standards of what a medical school has to do to get accredited. So, yeah, it should be all those various stakeholders. When you're talking K-12, yeah, I mean, it's state funded. So the state has to have some sort of role if we're talking to public education, but I think the local community should should as well. I don't think that uh, uh, a K-12 school in Philadelphia necessarily needs to have the exact same curriculum as a K-12 school in Pittsburgh. There are some nuances in those communities that you want to infuse and that you should want to bring in. So yes, stakeholders, the problem is though that you, you're, you'll know too is the more heads at the table, sometimes nothing ever gets resolved and nothing's ever going to get right. done. So, right. so there's that fine line there too. Let's talk about, okay, so obviously everyone can't have a say, although democratic participation is a great thing, but at the end of the day, you know, someone's going to have to design the curriculum and what's taught. Uh, you, I, I read, you know, in, your, in the bio that you sent me, uh, about building a school from the ground up and then about the the red tape, the bureaucracy, the rules, the regulations, all that sort of stuff. So from coming from higher ed, and I, I had a professor once that said um, if he wanted to change the curriculum uh, in the class he was teaching, he had to go through seven layers of management, um, which sounds insane. So talk to me about the hierarchy the layers of management in, in higher education and maybe some of the red tape uh, that you've experienced in your career, whether it's at higher ed or K through 12, what's some of the issues and hurdles and barriers and, and problems with all these different boards and people having a say and, and the things that are taught to you know students uh, in America? Yeah. I mean, seven layers, seven layers, that may not be too far off. Um, yeah. I mean, so any program that wants to, get off the ground and get going you you have to be accredited right so you have these accreditation boards so the medical school for example when we started lcme is the the liaison committee for medical uh, colleges right so they accredit the medical schools so you you go through various stages there's preliminary what are they preliminary uh something and then permanent uh, provisional, preliminary, provisional, and then permanent, right? So it's a basically a five-year process to get full accreditation. But, I mean, basically, you submit your um, curriculum. You have to demonstrate that you have facilities, that you have budgeting, that you have student affairs, like all, you know, that you're able to support students on this whole venture where where are you going to place them what hospitals what how many spots do they have dot 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 etc etc so you submit the proposal uh you know they either sign off on it or not right so you get your your preliminary accreditation so now you can start admitting students and so on and so forth so what you put in that that dci they call it that's basically your constitution. We're going to have this many classes. Students are going to take this many credits. Students are going to be in class this literally this many hours a week. You can't go over that. You have to try to calculate things. Um, they'll do this, 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 this. And you literally have to stick to that, that program. Um, they then come back. They'll do a site visit after uh, maybe a year or so. And they'll check up on it. You then submit for your second round. Are these like state agencies, federal agencies, federal local agencies. So, so, so 
you have the state for the college, if you will, and then you have the federal for like the medical school, for example. So this place I was at, they had to get accredited by middle states, which were this, you know, the state organization. And then it was the LCME, which was also was the medical school accreditation. Uh, the middle states allows you to give degrees. Um, then the LCME is the actual medical degree. Uh, but anyways, the point, I mean, we could go on and on. The yeah. point is, if you want to deviate from that, yeah, like there were times even to change a course objective, a faculty member would present, hey, I want to change a course objective. It had to go to a curriculum committee. It had to then be, they had to justify why why do you want to change the objective uh it then had to be voted on discussed debated in in our curriculum committee then if it got a motion it would get sent to the um president's cabinet or whatever that committee was et cetera et cetera and then it would have to be infused back into the accreditation documents for the next go around and all ultimately have to be approved there so yeah it's not now, like, can you change, hey, uh, I'm going to change this content from Tuesday to Thursday. That's not a big deal. But in terms of, like, program program outcomes, objectives, um, changing something from a three-credit class to a four-credit class or whatever, you know, yeah, there are definitely channels that that has to go through. So let me tell you something. Uh, I stopped listening about four or five minutes ago. Holy cow. That sounds awful. <laughs> uh, I don't want to go any more about red tape regulations. Uh, let's get weird. Let's get fun. I always like to end with um, some weird questions, some fun questions. So let's get right into it. Uh, maybe All five right. or so minutes, and then you can. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of time at the end to say your piece uh, and maybe talk about uh, advice for future educators or whatever you want to say, whatever you want to promote, whatever. Uh, who killed JFK? Oh man! Oh man! I don't know, man. I, I, you know, I, I, I. This is we don't have to go into discussion. I don't want to get in trouble. Yeah, we don't have to go into discussion. This is quick fire questions. Who killed JFK? My my grandmother was from Naples. I don't want to get in trouble with the uh, paisans, but I don't know. (laughs) Are we alone in the universe? Yeah, man. What are they? What are they doing in Area Fifty One then? Secret government stuff to keep the man down. How many? Uh, how many? What do you got? Seven or eight car garage? <laughs> I got a no car. I got zero car garage. That's the problem. <laughs> Trickle down economics. Sum it up for me. Bullshit, man. Keynesian economics. What was he all about? Uh, John Maynard, man, you're taking me back. You're taking me back. Blanking out. <laughs> I think he was big on, uh, I guess, uh, uh, deficit spending and, and, and uh, funding the economy with, uh, or, or whatever, getting money out in the economy for government programs and that sort yeah, of stuff. Go. Right, 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 right. Um, you, gotta, you gotta stimulate it, man. You gotta yes, stimulate it. Yes. It takes money to make money to earn money. Oh, oh yeah, brother. Uh, favorite sports team? You have one. Oh, yeah. The Philadelphia Eagles. Okay. What was the peak of your athletic performance? Did you have a peak? Did you have a moment where you're like, I'm on top of the world? 
Oh. And there's so many, so many, so many memories that come back, right? From playing to coaching. Yeah, but look, my, my. You were on Sports Illustrated, weren't you? What, what, what year were you on the cover there? Yeah, that didn't happen. Uh, nah, man. So, sophomore year of high school, we were the smallest quad A school in the state of Pennsylvania, and we played the eventual national champions, uh, who had all kind of NFL players. We lost fourteen nothing, but it was their toughest game all year. It was just it was. You belonged on the field with them, huh? We 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 yeah, we represented, man. We represented well. Do you have a hidden talent? I have a hidden talent. It's still hidden, I think. <laughs> um, do you have like a favorite class, a favorite teacher? What motivated you to get an education? Is there something you can draw on? It's memorable. It, I, it was just always there. My my dad was in it. My mom was in it. My grandparents were in it. I, I just I always was interested. You know, you'd watch sitcoms, the episodes where they were at school or whatever. I just always liked that stuff. I, I don't know. It was just it's what I knew. It's what I did. Did you have a favorite subject? Uh, I know you studied economics. Did you have a favorite yeah, it, subject I mean, in class? Was, it, I was always a history buff. I, you know, I, I I liked history. What's your favorite time period to study? Man, I love ancient Egypt, the, the Greeks. Uh, love that stuff. Uh, big Civil War guy, too. American Civil War. If you were invisible for 48 hours, what would you do? <laughs> I could tell you, but you'd have to edit that out. <laughs> What's crop circles all about? Yeah, farmers just got too much time. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, if I if I made you education czar in the United States, what's the first thing you're doing day one? What are you going to do? What are you going to implement? Education czar. What am I going to implement? Holy heck! The first thing I'm doing is let's pay teachers a living wage. That's the first thing. Well, I'm that's doing. where I was going. Somehow, some 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 financial element or area that that's where I was going. I was just trying to figure out how to. Yeah, that works. <laughs> What's the biggest threat facing humanity? Ourselves. Hell yeah, I think so too. What is art? Whatever you want it to be. Do you have a a helicopter pad? Uh, jet skis, what's your primary method of transportation on your little uh, compound out there? Three-row three SUV, man. <laughs> uh, you said you're a favorite time period. Um, if you could travel back in, in, into, in the past, what, what time period might you go and study if, if time travel were possible? I'd go back to ancient Egypt tomorrow. What do you think happens when you jump in a black hole? If you would get to a, the event horizon and dip your foot in and get sucked into a wormhole, where do you think you would end up? Hopefully in ancient Egypt. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, let's see if I – you have any pets? Yeah, man. I got a three-legged, one-eyed dog. Oh, yeah? Cool. And I got chickens and I got fish. All kind of stuff, man. Uh, what's your – farming. Yeah? You're, you're in yeah. the city limits? You got all that stuff? We got permit, permit for the hens. Okay, I have, I have three questions. Um, I'll, I'll end with the one about education last, and then you can discuss about that. Do you have a first memory? What's your first memory ever? Do you have one? What's your earliest memory? Oh, wow. I don't know, man. I have to reflect on that. 
I thought about the, that the other day, too. It's kind of interesting. And I don't even know at this point if it's a memory of a memory, you know, that I keep remembering. And I'm like, this even happened? Kind of strange yeah, right? how the brain works. I find it interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having a neuroscientist on in a couple of weeks. Can't wait to pick his brain. Oh, there you go. Um, what's, I have an easy one here. What's the meaning of life? Meaning of life is to do well, help others, and hopefully be happy. Yeah, I think Aristotle and the ancient Greeks said, you know, the good life, the happy life. Uh, and it was pretty simple for them too. Uh, and that was definitely being engaged in your local community, helping out that sort of stuff. He called the uh, the polis, the the city state. I think it was Aristotle, a partnership. Everyone working together. I think it is. I think it's a partnership. It's a We're purpose, all in this man. The, the purpose is to have a purpose. You gotta, you gotta have a purpose. All right, let's let's. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a little bit of time to plug whatever you want or say whatever you want. But uh, what's your advice to future teachers, educators, and educational leaders? What, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, no, no. A, thank you for the time and the opportunity. I absolutely appreciate it. And you know, I think like any field you know there are pluses and minuses it's easy to to nitpick on some things and than others you know I, I just my advice is you know if you're thinking about going into education we need we need educators we need passionate educators but you, you got to be in for it to, for the right reason and, and if you love it it's a great career it's a very rewarding career it's also a very frustrating career but you know I still have folders of notes or assignments or things from 15, 20 years ago, uh, cards from the first class I ever taught. Like those are things that you remember and people that you remember that uh, impact your life. And and you don't even realize what you do and the impact that you have on other people is as minimal as you might think it is. You, You have the ability to really impact somebody. So, you know, I, I would absolutely encourage people to get into education if, the, if it's something that they're interested in and something that they want to do and not not to be don't get caught up in the the perception of the low pay, this, that and the other. Um, there are ways, there are means, there are things that you can do, ways to grow just because you start out at, you know, a a low number doesn't mean you're going to stay at a low number, um, you know, and, and to administrators and, and people getting into management levels. I just I think it's important to like we talked about and you brought up experiment, try things. Don't be afraid to allow your teachers, your staff, your faculty to explore their interests, to pilot things, um, you know, to 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 prototype uh, things because uh, you never know what's going to happen and how it may impact and how it could change people. But I mean, it, education as, as much as, yeah, there are some frustrating things. I, I think it can be a very rewarding career and, and we, we need people, man. We need, we need the right people uh, to get in there and uh, turn it over and change the policies and change the management and how things are run. Dr. Ron, is there anything else you'd like to say to anyone listening out there? No, I, I appreciate it. If you're listening, thanks for listening. And uh, 
we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks for your time. You've been so generous. Have a great night, Dr. Ron. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Necessary Illusions. I also want to thank my special guest, Dr. Ron. He was very generous with his time tonight. It was fun discussing the educational system and American miseducation. Dr. Ron was a great guest, and I learned a lot. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. No gods, no masters. I'm out.